Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Ibis World podcast. This is Kieran Newton. I am an editor here at Ibis World, and with me today are two of our lead analysts here, Devin McGinley and Taylor Palmer. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Devin, you wrote uh, just a couple of weeks ago the media piece uh, on the Ibis World website uh, talking about some tech giants such as Google and Amazon and the ways that they're becoming increasingly involved in a whole bunch of new industries. Yeah, these companies have previously been disruptors to a number of industries, but they're making the move to become players in them. Yeah, and um, you see that the most recent example, just a couple weeks ago, the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods. And it's a surprising move because you normally think of Amazon, you associate it with the decline of brick and mortar retail. So it's such a, a massive investment in physical grocery stores. It's really kind of an odd move. Yeah, absolutely. And that was dominating the news cycle a while ago, but that's actually just closed. And you were telling me before the start of the show here that Amazon has already announced plans to start slashing prices. Yeah, that was kind of the first thing that they announced. So everybody kind of expected Amazon to come in and and cut prices. And with the addition of all of this extra capital, they're able to leverage their scale more effectively and more efficiently and lower prices. You said, Devin, that it's kind of a surprising move. Just sort of generally, what do we see, I guess, besides world domination? What's Amazon's kind of intention or goal in entering the grocery stores industry? Well, their goal is to sell groceries, right? Well, sure. (laughs) But, you know, Amazon Fresh has been uh, expanding, you know, over the last four years into major metropolitan areas. You have Amazon Prime, of course, has pretty quickly growing share of the online grocery market. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is an acknowledgement by Amazon that they need sort of a brick and mortar presence. They need these stores for the logistics of making these deliveries fast. There's probably also a ceiling, you know, uh, in terms of online sales and groceries. Mm-hmm. People, you know, ultimately want fresh produce. They want to be able to see the meats that they're buying. So it's maybe an acknowledgement that grocery sales are never going to move online completely. And to really be a player in this industry, it's going to have to have a physical presence. So Amazon is making a bet on the idea that you're going to need to be able to balance those two worlds. But in terms of strictly brick-and-mortar grocery stores, what exactly has been happening in that industry over the past couple of years? Well, you know, underlying demand for groceries is, of course, always pretty steady. I mean, it's not a discretionary expenditure people need to eat. But in brick-and-mortar grocery stores, I mean, sales have been very slow. Uh, Our Ibis World estimates uh, put revenue growth at about an average annual rate of 1% since 2012. To put that in perspective... Online grocery sales have grown at about ten percent per year. I did not and, know that. And groceries and grocery stores have been largely scaling back. I mean, you've seen a decline in the number of physical grocery stores over the last five years. Consolidation. And you've seen uh, you've seen a lot of major regional chains scaling back their expansion plans because online sales have captured so much of the market. Amazon coming into the fold in the grocery stores industry in a more drastic way is going to increase competition for these brick-and-mortar stores. Yeah, how big is this threat for for existing grocery stores? You said that it was kind of a capitulation on their part, saying we have to be physical, we can't just stay online. Does that reflect a 
potential you know remaining niche for existing grocery stores uh, uh, or you know what's the kind of takeaway there even after the combination of Amazon and Whole Foods it's not going to be dominant in terms of market share in groceries I mean they're just it's a very hard market to corner uh, sure because it's it's so regional and so localized but I would expect to that grocery stores are going to face a lot more price pressure going forward. You know, margins are already very slim in grocery sales. It's about average profit is about 2% of revenue. And of course, Amazon's already announced price slashing. It's sort of their dominant strategy. Even though it's not a national industry, they are still a national player that's going to be able to negotiate pricing with suppliers in a way that regional grocery chains just simply cannot. Uh, it's going to have logistical advantages in actually shipping uh, groceries to the stores. And of course, it can bring it right to your door. So this feels like it could have a particularly strong impact on smaller grocery stores. So the larger regional chains like Kroger and Piggly Wiggly and Publix seem like they could leverage scale in a way that could insulate them a little bit from the price pressure of Amazon. Sure. But it feels like smaller grocery stores might not be able to deal with that sort of competition. Do you think that Amazon coming into the market is going to push some of these smaller grocery stores or grocery chains out of business? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's already happening. Mm. Um, you know, you've seen a decline in participation in this industry. You've seen uh, grocery stores exiting the market. And that, I mean, you cannot separate that from the rise in online grocery sales, which is not just Amazon, but they're certainly sort of the leader there. It's the biggest name in town. Yeah. I also don't think it's a coincidence that the same week that this deal closed, we also had huge announcements at the other end of the company size spectrum with uh, Google and Walmart announcing a partnership. Uh, do you see this as a, as a backlash or a... A retaliation or anything like that um, maybe that's too strong <laughs> a reaction to yeah there you go yeah i mean google has been a bit of a laggard uh in e-commerce and i think to some extent they follow the lead of amazon i mean to some extent every e-commerce company follows the lead <laughs> of amazon sure but the main advantage of this partnership uh for google and walmart will be that you know the google home uh sort of google's presence in in consumers lives already will make it very easy to order groceries sort of at um recurring rates or just whenever uh they run out of one but that's that's something that amazon's already done with the dash button that's something that um amazon's sort of working toward even with consumer appliance manufacturers you have washing machines that will someday be able to order more detergent for you right uh, toothbrushes sure. that will order or their own heads and if you have an alexa in your apartment now you can already order from whole foods with your Alexa. right right, right. so the future of this sort of ambient computing and having these technologies in your home affecting your interactions on a number of different scales is going to benefit these large companies that can sort of tap into these minor. But Amazon is still going to have the advantage there because they're developing these private label products. They're kind of getting into the grocery supply game itself. So they're going to be able to use, leverage all this consumer data to actually determine which products they're going to stock, which products they're going to develop. And they can be ahead of the curve as, you know, consumer tastes change. And of course, you know, 
especially in food, you know, consumer tastes have been all over the place over the last couple of years. And I think also this is a really good example of just sort of the ongoing digitization of physical industries and grocery stores are not the only place that that's happening. Uh, Amazon is also doing that for other industries, uh, one of which is another one that you talk about in the piece, which is movie theaters and Amazon and, of course, their competitors, Netflix and other forms of online streaming are already encroaching on both traditional movie studios and also the movie theater space. So, you know, they're kind of trying to play both sides, right? Yeah, yeah. So obviously Netflix has been involved in movies and television distribution uh, and increasingly production over the last few years. What's been interesting is that they're increasingly starting to look like traditional film distributors in, in some ways. They've been sort of acquiring films very aggressively on the festival circuit. Uh, Amazon, of course, uh, won uh, some Oscar awards for Manchester by the Sea last year. The mm-hmm. um, first streaming service to win an, uh, an award like that for a full-length film. And they're showing their films in, in theaters, which is uh, sort of unexpected because these companies have been all about sort of taking movies out of the theater and bringing them into the comfort of your home. So what sort of advantages do companies like Amazon and Netflix have in this video production and video distribution space? What sort of things can they leverage that gives them a leg up in this industry that they're moving into? So the biggest thing is is money. They have a lot of cash on hand. Netflix invested $6 billion in original content in 2016. That's twice the budget of HBO, which has been in the media space for decades. The advantage of having this original content is that you don't simply need to license other content from other media companies. It gives you a degree of control over your content uh, that you wouldn't have if you were at the mercy of getting syndication rights, um, particularly because as cable companies and, and film distributors realized how big Netflix was becoming, they sort of uh, tamped down on on the on the distribution deals that they were giving them yeah it's uh, a it's a form of vertical integration for right. netflix and, for and, and and you know netflix's marquee shows are i'm sure bringing people to the service and keeping them there uh, you know and it's because it's become very competitive uh with streaming services but even as other companies enter streaming netflix and amazon really are unique in that Right now, they are the only ones that are sort of inching back towards traditional movie theaters. What is the advantage that they see there? Yeah, they're, I mean, they're the only tech companies, really, that are going, of course, kind of going to the theaters. And, um, which is kind of weird because Mm -hmm. Netflix's whole value proposition was, you know, sort of at home entertainment. Right. But directors like having their their films on the big screen. Sure. Actors like being on the big screen. It and critics review movies that come out in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, movies aren't eligible for awards unless they come out in theaters. So it's it's really I think a a way to recruit talent and sort of become more competitive in you know feature length films because. Netflix has been very successful, at least culturally. We don't really know about the financials, but they've been very culturally successful in their television content. Orange is the New Black, House of Cards. They've 
been kind of right. touchstones. But in that film market, this is a recognition that you need the theatrical release model to some extent to attract the big names. Actually, on that note of uh, financials, just really quick, you know, the huge story a couple of weeks back of Netflix being staggeringly in debt, and yet they're still able to make these huge plays uh, that kind of speaks to uh, what you were referencing earlier about, you know, the kind of financial flexibility of these internet companies more so than the traditional media ones. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's because in tech investors are sort of looking more to the future than than investors on sort of a traditional in a traditional media company. I think one of the interesting things, you know, Amazon's been showing its its films in theaters. Netflix has been pushing to, but it's been very insistent on same day streaming and theatrical release, you know. And I think one of the interesting things is if Netflix had exclusive theatrical releases, it would be the first time that anybody knew how profitable its projects were. Mm. Because, you know, we know, you know, I'm sure they have their their metrics. And we think of Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, some of those other Netflix originals as very successful. But it's because of the, you know, sort of the cultural dialogue surrounding them and the critical acclaim. We really don't know how Netflix, you know, measures the profitability of these. Right, sure. And a push for Netflix to get their films screened in theaters the same day as they go up on their actual streaming site is a little bit of a tough sell for these theaters because those first few box office weeks are crucial to the success of not only the films, but the movie theaters themselves. Yeah, yeah. And really, I I mean, it's a it's a concentrated industry. You know, the three top theater chains, Regal, AMC, uh, Cinemark, control 54% of the market. I think if it were more fragmented, it'd be much harder to keep Netflix out of theaters. So the entire movie sector really has become more reliant on these blockbusters. Uh, They're the movies that will actually bring people to the theaters. Mm -hmm. They're studios have have gotten a bit more risk averse and they want to know that they're going to have a a high box office gross and if you take that away from theaters i mean box office sales have been pretty stagnant over the over the last few years from 2012 to 2016 uh the domestic box office actually declined very slightly and this has made theaters more reliant on concession sales, on making investments in sort of the theater experience, added amenities, and they've done well. I mean, the the industry's grown, but there's a limit there. You know, they still need to bring people uh, into the theater. So consumers having the option to sort of forego the $12 or $13 ticket and just watch the movie at, on, at home is really a, a pretty big threat to them if it's something that becomes more widespread. Yeah, and even with these big blockbuster movies, you're liable to see somewhere around a 50% drop in box office gross from week to week. So any disincentivization to get consumers into the theater themselves is probably not going to play well in most of these theaters. Yeah. So these companies aren't going away. This is going to be a perennial threat for movie theaters. Can they resist this pressure forever? Is is there anything that they can do to stave off these declines to box office revenue? 
Well, again, uh, the the major chains have a pretty firm grip on the industry, mm-hmm. um, but they don't make decisions as a consortium. So I think right. you know if one theater chain you know decides to start working with Netflix, it's going to put pressure on on the other chains. And again, Netflix has been pouring billions of dollars into mm-hmm. content development. It is eventually going to hit on a property that is going to bring in box office revenue and is going to be popular among consumers. And theaters will certainly, you know, feel the pressure if and when that happens. It's kind of a prisoner's dilemma for theaters. Yeah. And that reminds me a lot of what was happening with uh, wireless network carriers a a few years ago in terms of zero rating. There was an implicit agreement amongst these huge carriers that people weren't going to zero rate and that all data would sort of be treated as equals. But as soon as T-Mobile got into the zero rating game, all of the other major carriers decided that it was something that they had to do as well to stay competitive. So as soon as the first domino falls, it's pretty easy to see the rest of them going down too. Yeah. And I mean, it's highly speculative, but if Netflix winds up uh, with some property like with the popularity of Star Wars or Marvel, and I can't, I can't tell you what that will be, but it would be very difficult for one theater chain to not show those movies. And movie theaters aren't the only media industry that are feeling this pressure. I'd like to kind of pivot real quick to focusing more. We've talked about movies uh, for a bit now. Uh, let's talk about cable providers and TV and. Uh, This is also kind of a shift more towards the Google side of this equation um, with the, you know, recently implemented uh, YouTube TV and those subscriptions offering, you know, basic packages uh, through browsers. What's this sort of big shakeup looking like? Yeah, so YouTube TV launched in April. Uh, It's a $35 a month package of about 50 channels. So it's a much skinnier bundle than the typical cable package. Mm -hmm. And it's also much cheaper and they can do that because they don't have these legacy telecommunications infrastructure networks. Sure. YouTube and Google have moved very quickly with this. You know, at the outset, it wasn't clear, you know, how they were going to be able to negotiate broadcast licenses with all these local network affiliates. But they've expanded over the last few months to cover more than 50% of the U.S. population. Some estimates put the number of app downloads at about 2 million as of July. We don't know how much, uh, how many subscribers that's translated into, but YouTube has about 200 million monthly active users. It's a huge user base sure. and is positioned for very fast growth, you know, compared to other streaming services. It's also live television, which is not something we've seen really from a company that wasn't involved in the television distribution sector before. Right, you know, you have Directv and Dish Network both have their streaming services, but these are these are a hedge, right? Like right, they're a sure. hedge against sort of declining cable subscriptions. It's kind of unique for a tech company that hasn't been in this space before, at least not directly, to introduce a live television offering. Yeah, and that's something that these cable networks have been talking about for quite some time, and that makes it particularly dangerous to them because. In the conversations about unbundling and cable cutting, one of the things that keeps being brought up time and time again is that people will return to cable subscriptions for live events. Right. So if YouTube TV can leverage that, it seems like they have a pretty unique opportunity to disrupt that industry. Yeah, that's that's definitely been one of the big 
advantages uh, for cable providers. You can binge watch your favorite comedies, but when the Super Bowl rolls around, you're going to want that live experience. And people are increasingly using just the basic YouTube product on on their home televisions in their living rooms. Uh, the company reported 90% growth over 2016 in people in viewership on televisions on connected to the internet. So YouTube's kind of already in the living room, so to speak, mm. which is where advertisers want to be too. So they're already there. And in a way that another company really couldn't have been when launching this service. And uh, on another level, you know, those advertisers are especially looking at a company like Google who has the amount of analytics and uh, consumer insight that really even among all of these plethora of streaming services that are that are popping up and, and other live TV services, you know, things like Twitch or Hulu or things like that, Google is still unique. They still have such incredible value for advertisers. Yeah, and the YouTube television package right now is pretty much priced at a, at a loss. I mean, pretty much the entire $35 that they charge is going to broadcasters for licensing fees. But cable networks, television broadcasters will generally give cable providers a very small share of their advertising time for the cable providers to sell. Mm -hmm. And YouTube is most likely planning on getting most of its revenue from that small slice of, of advertising time during commercial breaks that would ordinarily go to the cable company. Mm -hmm. I think Google is probably positioned to make a lot more of that opportunity than your local cable provider. Right. Um, you, they can deliver targeted advertising. They have decades of consumer data at their disposal that they can leverage. I think at this point, the question really sort of becomes, can traditional cable compete if this takes off? And that is very speculative, of course. If this is the way it is going, if live TV is finally moving online, are there things that traditional cable providers, the industry as a whole, can do to combat this new upstart from one of the biggest companies in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's a big threat because, you know, basic cable packages, you know, sort of the bare minimum packages uh, sold by cable companies account for 71% of revenue. Mm -hmm. So there's premium networks that they can sell. There's pay-per-view programming that they can sell, but their bread and butter is the basic package. And sure, you know, there's certainly a lot of consumers who only would say that they only need 50 channels. Yeah. So cable television subscriptions have been declining since 2010. Cable providers themselves have done okay, or they've kind of just maintained the status quo revenue wise. Revenue's grown at an annualized rate of 0.6% since 2012, which isn't much growth, but in the context of declining cable viewership. Holding steady is still a yeah. victory. And they've done that by upselling uh, existing customers. They've done that by bundling other services with their cable packages like voice and internet. But again, those services are also becoming much less relevant to a lot of consumers. Cable isn't going to be dead in the immediate future, but the long term is, is pretty bleak. And I think the best evidence of that is the uh, investments that you know Time Warner has invested in Hulu, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, both two of the major satellite companies are investing, have invested in their own streaming platforms. And that's kind of, you know, follow the money. That's, you know, absolutely. That's where they think that's clearly where they think that the industry is going. I think one thing that's interesting about all of the industries that we've talked about so far is that these big online behemoths that are moving in are pretty blatantly just trying to take away market share from existing operators that have been in the industry for decades. But that's not necessarily the case with uh, our last topic, the last industry we're talking about today, which is the newspaper industry. And this is something that Google and Facebook have kind of been disrupting for a while, but they're moving into in a bigger way now. How are they doing that? Yeah, so these companies have always had an impact on the news, but they've sort of positioned themselves as sort of agnostic platforms through which consumers access whatever media they want. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we know that's not true. That the, the, <laughs> the Facebook, al- you know, Facebook has algorithms that right. you know uh, determines what we see in ways that we don't really know. Sure. Um, they've been sort of owning up to it over the last year and publicly taking a role in curating news content. Both companies have launched versions of a fact-checking program in partnership with professional journalism organizations. Uh, Facebook is uh, testing uh, and talking to newspapers right now about a paywall feature within the Facebook app itself so that consumers could can pay for their news through Facebook um, and 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 read publications within the app. Um, And we don't know what that's going to look like, uh, really. Uh, You know, there's been some reporting on it uh, that newspapers have sort of rejected a sort of Spotify-type model uh, where there'd be a flat subscription rate for access to a a package of publications. So we're not sure what it's going to look like, but they've definitely sort of become more involved in the newspaper industry. This sounds to a certain extent, you know, again, like, so different from the others, it sounds like they're trying to help, <laughs> almost, which, you know, I, I... I think they're okay with that perception. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have no, I have no yeah. illusions to Facebook or Google's motives, but I think it's interesting that they are trying to promote that perception uh, of... of working with these companies and and figuring out a solution that works for both sides. Yeah, well, I mean it's not it's never always, you know, about just helping out, right? No, of course not. So, um the Facebook and Google both took a lot of heat um over the last year for sort of becoming platforms through which misinformation uh could be widely disseminated and there's been an acknowledgement that the incentives there are kind of wrong in terms of, uh, you know, qual- you know, producing quality information, quality news, mm-hmm. that clicks are more important than sort of active engagement. You know, six in 10 Americans get their news, or at least some of their news through these, through these platforms. They control about the same proportion of digital advertising, 60%. And it's important to their business for them to be places where people can act can continue to access good information. Uh, you know, if you know, sort of fake news is rife on Facebook, it it hurts Facebook's product. But these things do have the added benefit of newspapers of sort of restoring um, 
restoring quality content as a competitive factor uh, and maybe maybe even supporting revenue a little bit uh, through their subscription service. Restoring trust and to a certain extent as well. Right. And that's sort of been the long-standing problem with newspapers is that, uh, you know, be, besides just the fact that people have shifted away from print, is that the nature of digital advertising, which sort of has long emphasized reach over sort of the time people spend on the publication. Sure. Um has really incentivized just clicks and and really reduced the value of having a news brand. You know, it used to be that people read a newspaper because they trusted it and advertisers wanted that demographic, the demographic that read that paper, you know, and that was valuable for marquee publications like the New York Times. You know, advertisers knew that they had, you know, a wealthy, educated audience that they could access, um, but that's just not as important online, or it hasn't been. So you mentioned that this could potentially prop up revenue for the newspaper publishing industry. And as we all know, that industry has been faced with a fair share of troubles over the past couple of years. Could you go into a little bit more about how this could potentially end up helping that industry expand? Well, I mean, the major thing is sort of restoring good news as a competitive factor for newspapers, which may be something that sort of the fact-checking, their fact-checking programs may help. But it's unclear how much digital subscriptions are going to save the news industry. I mean, revenue has declined at an annualized rate of 6% since 2012, which is staggering. And paywalls have been around during that time. You know, the industry generates about 15% of its revenue from digital advertising, but twice as many people read the news online than they do in print. I mean, digital readers are just simply not as valuable as somebody who you know is getting a print subscription to their door every day and engaging with that publication. So it's kind of hard to say how this is going to affect the industry without knowing how Facebook's subscription program is going to look but certainly i mean most a lot of people are getting their news through facebook and having that subscription option within the app itself can't hurt yeah so there's a pretty deep chasm in terms of the monetization of a digital reader versus a print reader and it's only going to get worse digital revenue is obviously only going to get more important for newspapers and the future of their print products is pretty unclear at this point so you know we'll just have to see yeah and one of the things that's really interesting just to tie in a thread with all four of the things that we've talked about right now we're looking at these companies that are really widely known as players that thrive on breakthroughs and we're seeing them move into four industries that are super well entrenched in the economy and are known to be quite mature and lagging in growth. So to see entrance into those industries is rather surprising. Yeah, so it's 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 surprising in the sense that there are things that we don't associate with these tech companies, like physical stores for Amazon or a movie theater for Netflix. But it's in a way, not surprising either because they've been sort of poking around the edges of these markets for you know, the last decade. So to some extent, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? You know, you need to, you know, you need physical stores for things like produce. You need, 
you know, physical, you know, even if they become e-commerce fulfillment centers, people want groceries in their neighborhood. You know, viewers, creators want their films on, on big screens. People want live television. Yeah, honestly, we've seen the economy push so far into the digital space over the past couple of years, and we've seen such an increasing focus in investment come in the form of these digital companies. We're starting to see a little bit of a regression to the mean in what has been a little bit of an overcorrection into the boom of e-commerce and the boom of digitization. All right, well, I think that sums it up. I think that's going to about do it for us. Uh, Taylor Palmer, Devin McGinley, thank you again so much for for joining us today. Uh, And once again, this has been Kieran Newton. You've been listening to the Ibis World Podcast, and we'll see you next time.